today, uh, from happy birthday to talking about war. Now, there's a switch. Uh, what does Jesus think about war? I'm mindful of the, of the, uh, um, the reality that my last three sermons have been, all have been about quite heavy topics. Uh, two sermons ago, it was about climate change and the challenges with that. Refugees and the challenges around that. And this week, we're talking about war. So I don't know what's next. Uh, we'll have to see what could go, what could top all that. So, but in talking about these somewhat challenging topics, I, I'm not going to make an apology for that because it's real things in our world and things that have been a real issue for, for a long time and that God cares about. And so as we examine this topic today, what I'd like to encourage us to do our best to line, great to have you with us, uh, is to be thinking about what is God's heart about this. Not so much what the technical issues are, but what is God's heart? How does he feel? What is his perspective? And what does that mean for you and me? We're not here to debate what politicians should do. Uh, not that that's irrelevant, entirely irrelevant, but because the chances of us directly influencing any politician of significant influence to make a difference to do with war is very slim. Doesn't mean we don't have any influence, but we don't have much. But we do have influence over our own lives. So what might we learn today about what God thinks about war and conflict, you could say more broadly, that's relevant for you and me in our encounters with conflict? And we do encounter conflict, don't we? Sometimes at home, sometimes in our workplaces, sometimes in our neighborhoods, sometimes within other groups that we're part of. Quite often, um, if you are active on social media, you will have conflict on social media. How do we handle that? How do we take something from the heart of Jesus and the perspective of God to to help us with the conflict that's real in our own lives. So that's what we're hopefully going to get some perspective on uh, right here. So let me ask you a basic question as we begin here. Maybe just a one sentence answer if you can. If you were to ask Jesus, what do you think about war? What do you think he would say? What do you think he might say? I know we're using our imagination here. But from what you know of Jesus and his teachings, if you asked him, Jesus, what do you think about war? It's a human problem. It's a human problem. Because definitely not a God problem here. It's a human problem. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit Okay, he might be re-quote what he said in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, maybe you say uh, these are meant to happen before the end, like I said. Wars are going to happen before the end comes. Okay. Stephen, did you have your hand up? Sorry. Flee. Okay, flee when you see these things happening. Matthew 24. Okay, yeah. Did it say um, our battle is not against the physical forces, but against spiritual? A battle isn't against the physical forces, of, but the, the, the spiritual forces of evil, that's our real battle. You might come back with that kind of perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir? There's no more war in heaven. Aha. There's going to be a time when it's finished, done with, no more. Anything else? Think he might say? I mean, I don't know exactly, right? We're using our imagination here based on what we know of Jesus. Because we do with 
Okay, he might comment on the on the origins of or causes. Sorry, that's a better word of war. It's because we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve or, or is owed to us or there's something personal going on there. Yes, uh, Liz. He might say, "Love your neighbor, love your enemy." Uh, yes, yes. He might say that. Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't know exactly what he would say, and I'm not going to try and pro proclaim as if I do, but I hope we get some insight as to what would be useful uh, for us. We do see a change, don't we, in the Bible? In the Old Testament, um, we do see war, and we do see God's people involved in war. And on a different day with a different topic, I would perhaps teach on, on that, because a lot of questions come about why is there war in the Old Testament? Why were God's people told to go to war what you know but in the new testament we don't see that in fact we see a very different perspective so we're not going to deal with the whys of war in the old testament today you're going to have time to do all of that and what we're talking about today but it might be something for you to study and think about yourself but in the new testament we don't have any hint that jesus expected his people to go to war we are aware that violence has been part of humankind's experience since the very beginning um it's been part of our history as humankind. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I know that's not war technically, but it's violence that leads to death. It's there right at the beginning. It seems that there's something in us humans which resort to violence at the times when we feel perhaps we have a cause to fight for, that we feel violence is justified for. But God has a vision even in the Old Testament of a different time. These two sections from Isaiah chapter 11 and 65, for example, this is a vision that God is giving about another time that's still to come. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God has a vision of the future where there is no more conflict, where there is no more <coughs> violence. Most of that is, I'm sure, metaphorical, but it's expressing something very beautiful about the future, which begins, to some degree, I think we'd have to say, with Jesus. Because until Jesus, this was nowhere near a reality at any point in Israel's history. But Jesus comes along and makes statements some of us have referenced already. When he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So tell me, what's the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? What is the difference? He doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. They might be, but that's not what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's the difference? Sorry? The peacemaker is more proactive. Peacemaker is proactive? Yeah. You're acting with yourself out there. <coughs> um, to assure that it's happening, not just trying to stay neutral. It's not just being neutral. Mm. It's not being neutral, it's going out there, stepping out there, taking action. That's true. Mm. Anything else that's different between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker? Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that. So the peacekeeper might just be a temporary thing to, to prevent some conflict, maybe temporarily. But you'd hope that a peacemaker is somebody that makes peace between peoples that last. Yes, that's a, that's a good point. I like that distinction. Okay, anything else? The difference between the two. At the back? A peacemaker makes the effort to ensure there's always a peace and understanding. And I think the Roman speakers are that matter depends on us, we should live at peace. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Yes, Romans. Uh, yeah, so going out there, stepping out, taking action. Good. Somebody else had a hand up. I missed it. Yeah. I think similar to Singapore foreign action, that if there's a dispute, you can keep the peace by saying nothing. But that's very different from actively engaging in discussion to try and resolve the situation. Mm. And one can look more peaceful than the other, but if you don't talk about those difficult things, then they will, you know, they will get worse. Peacekeeping could could look peaceful because there's no maybe no conflict going on, right? Yeah. Obvious conflict, exactly. Not outwardly, it may look peaceful, but it may not be ultimately underneath. In fact, what you're pointing to is something I think is quite significant, and we haven't got time to talk about it today, but peacemaking requires conflict, doesn't it? Interestingly, sorry, you were gonna say something. Yeah, I think that sometimes peacekeeper may resort to violence. <laughs> peacekeeping may require violence. Yeah, yeah. Peacemaking is about resolution in the end. Peacekeeping can just per per per, per um, perpetuate. Thank you. She knows my mind. <laughs> we have been married a long time. Perpetuate the ongoing conflict, but just keeping it under control to some level, right? We're, that's creating a new reality, is peacemaking. Yeah. With conflict, that you knew, you know, the military situation that you are in, that you are warring against, and you will, if you are a Christian and know what God's word says, even that will still be in conflict. There's no guarantee that first person to do that. But you're rather the better man because you have gone forward and without anything, not wanting to just put your hands out and do the right thing. And Thank you. Yes. Wise words. You know, God is not happy about people who perpetuate a false peace. One of the prophets, which escapes me for the moment, somebody here will know, was uh, condemned other prophets in the Old Testament who went around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God is not into peacekeeping. He's into peacemaking. We'll talk more about that, what it means for us as we go along. But what I'd like us to do just for, for our own benefit and the benefit of the people around us is to reflect on the conflicts that you and I are involved in and whether we're acting as a peacekeeper or whether we're acting as a peacemaker. And if you're not acting as a peacemaker, what would it look like for you to take the first step as a peacemaker in that conflict situation? 
And the conflict may be out, outward where, you know, there's really angry words between you and somebody, or it may be inward where you feel that anger and the narrative in your head is, I can't believe that person did that. Why do they do that? I, I'm really, I don't, I hate that person. Um, they're being horrible to me. Why? And there's this conversation going on in your head and the conflict is there. Well, what might be the first thing you could do that would then give a chance for peacemaking to happen instead of peacekeeping? I wonder. Worth us reflecting on. Jesus also said, as somebody mentioned, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't just tolerate your enemies. Uh, love them. Uh, again, we don't have time to go into the detail. He's not saying approve of them or agree with them, but just say love them. Figuring out how we can love people is possible even if we, if we cannot, at a particular point, reconcile with them. Reconciliation takes two parties. Love only takes one. You can love people even if you're not reconciled with them. That's still possible. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, when he's in Gethsemane, and Peter's pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of uh, Malchus, right, the servant of the high priest, uh, he says, put your sword back in its place. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. There are different interpretations of what people think Jesus meant by that. But at least for sure, it seems to indicate he doesn't think drawing a sword is a good idea. I think we can settle on that for sure. Put it back in its, in its place there. Later in the New Testament, Romans 12, as somebody referenced, if it is possible. Now, there's an if that begins that sentence. If it is possible, first thing. Second, as far as it depends on you, second thing. Third, live at peace with everyone. So one of the things we have to deal with with our conflict situations is firstly, is it possible to make peace? Is it actually possible? And again, you need two parties for that. You might need more than two. You might need some other help, but you need at least two, the two people to, or two bodies to make peace. Secondly, as far as it depends on you, so you do what you can. You, you can't control anybody else. We'd like to think if we did the right thing, other people would do what we think is the right thing, which might or might not be the right thing, but we like to think that's going to happen automatically. But the truth is we don't control every, anybody, even other Christians. You know, sometimes we'd like other Christians to behave in a certain way. Uh, uh, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend in the church. We'd like them to, uh, you know, we think, well, we'll be humble and then they'll be humble or we'll be uh, loving and they'll be loving. And it's kind of automatic because I'm a Christian and they're a Christian, so they have to. The thing is, people still have a choice. And you can't make anybody do anything. You, you may be within your rights to challenge what you see as unrighteous behavior, but you still can't make anybody do anything. And we've got to recognize that it's as far as it depends on you. We have to be righteous before God ourselves and not, not be bent out of shape if other people aren't as righteous as we perhaps think they should be, which is another, you know, it's our own perspective in the end, right? God knows the heart. If it's possible. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I think that's a great, it's a great verse to memorize, especially when you get into conflict situations. And somebody else mentioned this concept of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that though we do live in this world, we don't wage war in the way that the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons uh, of the world. They're not the physical weapons. Ephesians chapter 6. What's our struggle? 
What is our battle? It's not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is what's in front of your face, and it's what's annoying you, you could say right there and then, but that's not really the struggle. The struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our struggle, and that would be overwhelming, except that we have the Holy Spirit who is victorious over those powers. So we have hope even in the struggle. And 1 Peter 3 verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Really good um, advice for social media. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Repay evil with a blessing. How hard that is. You know, I occasionally get feedback on my lessons from people I don't know because uh, they're online. Uh, sometimes it's uh, podcasts, sometimes it's YouTube, sometimes I get messages on email, whatever. And sometimes they're just, you know, thanks very much, whatever. Sometimes it's like, I'm not really sure about that. Other times it's really detailed and um, attacking. And it's very challenging to not respond with uh, similar vitriol uh, and attack back and say, yeah, but you didn't, you, like, oh, okay, I didn't interpret that verse right. It's, it's really difficult not to come back with, well, you didn't interpret that verse right. Ha! Huh. See, if you like that, that's about an argument about interpretation. And I, I had one recently, and I, I prayed about it and gave it a couple of days, which is usually a good idea, right? Don't respond straight away. Give it a day or two, pray about it. But I responded with uh, affirmation of the person's correct points, explanation of some things that I think he'd misunderstood, apologies for anything that I may have not said quite right, and I got a really nice message back saying, thanks very much, that's really helpful. <sighs> but it could have been an ongoing email battle. Have you ever had those? You don't have to, you don't have to confess, but it, it doesn't go anywhere, does it? You don't win. No one wins. You just lose sleep. That's all that happens. And you get an ulcer. I mean, th this is what happens, right? So it doesn't make mean it's easy, but we repay evil with blessing, or you could say not just evil, repay unkindness with blessing or repay misunderstanding of your point with blessing. We are the blessing type people, right? We are the blessed and we are the blessers. That's, that's what a Christian is in so many ways, so simply in a way. And where's this going? Revelation 21 verse four, that's the nice rainbow, that came, double rainbow that was in Croxley recently. Beautiful thing, a, a stunning rainbow over, over the woods there. Um, what's gonna happen at the end? <laughs> He will wipe away, he, wipe, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear. Every tear. All the pain and suffering of all the world that is with him, all those that are with him, all the tears will be wiped away. All your tears. Not just the conflict tears, but the other tears that we have in life. But let's talk about the conflict, the arguments, the, 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 the tension, all those things that cause us so much anxiety, so much angst, so much uh, internal pain, every one of your tears will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more war, there'll be no more mourning, because there'll be no more death. 
There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. The old order has passed away. That's where we're going. We're going to a place of ultimate, perfect peace. What's our job? Our job, our job is to try and live that with God's strength and power now to show the world there's a better way, a better way to deal with conflict. In the early church, they debated a lot as to whether you had to be a pacifist to be a Christian. I know we have people in the room here who served in the military and uh, are not passing a comment on, on these views. But an early Christian writer called Tertullian said this, Inquiries made about the point of whether a believer may enter into military service. The question is also asked whether those in the military may be admitted into the faith. Like, if you're a soldier, can you be a Christian, is the question. A man cannot give his allegiance to two masters. This is his opinion. God and Caesar, because you have to swear an oath to Caesar to be in the army. How will a Christian man participate in war? He thinks it's not right. For the Lord has taken the sword away. He says, it's also true that soldiers came to John the Baptist and received instruction for their conduct. It's not like John the Baptist said they couldn't be soldiers. He just, they just were told how to be good, good, good soldiers and followers of Yahweh. And they received instructions. It is true also that the centurion believed. So again, Jesus helped the centurion come to faith. You could say he didn't tell the centurion he couldn't carry on being a centurion. Nevertheless, the Lord afterward, in disarming Peter, that passage we looked at earlier, put your sword away, disarmed every soldier. So he's wrestling himself here, I think, a little bit about what, what is the right perspective? Could a Christian participate in war or not? It, it, has, uh, it brings up strong reactions. Some people feel very passionately that a Christian cannot be involved in war and must be a pacifist. Others don't feel the same way. I'm going to suggest that we have to come to our own personal conviction on this. Um, I don't believe it's a salvation issue. I, I don't. Maybe you do. You're entitled to that. But the Bible doesn't seem to me to make it a salvation issue. But I do think it's important for us to have an informed view of why we believe what we believe. So I'm not going to talk more on that right now, but encourage us to think about that issue for ourselves. You know, Jesus, as some, Stefan maybe prayed about this, I think. Jesus can use war and conflict to, to open up hearts, but I cannot believe he ever desires war. Jesus wants peace, and you and I have the opportunity to be his peace bringers in the conflicts that we are connected to. I put a bit more information on some of these issues in today's Watford Word, so you can read that at your leisure. But I want to finish after well, Bonhoeffer first, and then we'll finish with First Peter. If you don't know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you might want to look him up online. It's, an, it's a very interesting story. He was a, a renowned German uh, theologian pastor at the time of the rise of the Nazis, and a very brave man. He, um, uh, he stood up to the Nazis the best he could. He got involved uh, and connected with the German resistance. And it's not widely known, but as well as, say, a French resistance and during the Second World War, there was a German resistance movement. They were trying to resist uh, what was going on in Nazi Germany. And he got connected to them and, uh, and, and um, engaged effectively in espionage, you could say. Very risky. And he eventually, uh, and, and there, there is evidence that he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Not directly, but indirectly. And when the German authorities found out about it, they imprisoned him and then executed him. Not long before the end of the war, he was, he was hung and killed in, uh, in prison. But he said a couple of things I think are worth reflecting on as a Christian theologian. 
He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. He also said this. If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe and then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. You can imagine being in that situation and think this was part of his justification for opposing Hitler, perhaps even in, in the area of um, giving approval to violent means to remove him. Now, whether he was right or wrong is, again, going to be an opinion area. But these are the things we, you and I need to think about and pray about and come to our own convictions about. At the very least, we can't say, we're going to sit here, everything's fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, and not act. So we'll go to our scripture before we take bread and wine together to help us to draw some threads together and then to... Center our minds on Jesus and the cross before we take the communion. So Paul says this to Timothy in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he adds, for kings and those in authority. Why does he add kings and those in authority? Because I think for most Christians he's writing to, if he says, pray for everybody, People will pray for their friends and their family and the people they know. Will they naturally pray for the president, the prime minister, the king, the, I don't know. No, they probably won't. So Paul makes it clear he means everybody, including the people you might not like, <laughs> including the people you disagree with, including the people who might be enslaving you, who might be going to war and causing a lot of problems. Pray for them, kings or all those in authority, that we may live. What? Peaceful lives. Peaceful lives and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. So come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. All people, all includes our enemies. All people, he wants all people to be saved. Even those we, we disagree with, even those we have conflict with. He wants all people to be saved. Doesn't mean they, all, mean they all will be, but that's what his heart is. And peace will promote that, not war. One mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Because you remember, Jews and Gentiles didn't really get on. But Paul wanted to promote peace between Jew and Gentile. Because God wants all to be saved. He wants everybody here to be saved. He wants everybody here to be ransomed. If you've not yet been ransomed, let's talk to me, let's talk about that. But he wants your friends to be ransomed. He wants your family to be ransomed. And part of the way that's going to happen is when we love our enemies in our midst or in our circles. And when we make peace with the people that we're in conflict with, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible. So I'm calling us, and myself here, to courage, really, 
Because I don't know about you, but I hate conflict. And I avoid conflict like the plague. Penny would say, amen. <laughs> you can tell she's holding herself back because, you know, th this, is, this is me. I'm a conflict avoider. I hate it, uh, even on a small level. But, you know, I, got, I need the strength of God. I need, I need the Holy Spirit because that's not like Jesus. Jesus did have a lot of conflict, but he dealt with it in the right way. You and I can if we hold on to him. And remember that it's about giving other people the best chance to be saved. Because Jesus was given as a ransom. And that's why we're going to take these emblems uh, that represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ, this bread and wine, these, these little things we're going to eat and drink right now. We're doing that to remind us of how lucky we are to be ransomed. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We couldn't pay for it. But Jesus said, okay, I will ransom you because I love you and I want peace for you between me and my heavenly Father and you. So I'm going to ask Oge to come up and pray for us right now. And we'll pray and then we'll take bread and wine.